station, but we're here for a real education. Welcome to A Real Education. I am your host, Tim Wick, joined as always by my co-hosts, movie high priestess, Melissa Kersher. Hello. And, <laughs> and movie, uh, what do we call it, Acolyte? Acolyte. Acolyte, Jenna Young. Hi. Uh, we are here at uh, the lovely Peace Coffee Studios, uh, <laughs> recording before we go into the trial on movie theater for a wonderful live showing and a discussion of Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Yes. So, mm-hmm. Jenna, we are about to watch Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. What do you know about the movie? David Bowie. <laughs> David Bowie. <laughs> Um, this By is actually, this is one that we saw a trailer for. We did. Mm-hmm. You're right. We were watching the last one live here. Uh-huh. And uh, so I know a little bit more about it. It's uh, a World War II, um, and I, I honestly didn't pay that much attention. But, <laughs> it's, uh, but you saw David Bowie. But I saw David Bowie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's, it's World War II, and uh, I don't know, there were bits and pieces of... Um, like a war camp, I think. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And and yeah, yeah. There was sadness and death and and, and struggle and, and things like that. But I can't think of what the 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 title is or any of the plot or anything like that. So, other um, than it's a, it's a very it, it's <laughs> one of the weirdest trailers I've ever seen. Just the way it's cut together. <laughs> so I I. I don't blame you for not knowing what the yeah, hell is going on. Because if I saw that trailer, I'd be going, what the hell is going on? But David I'd Bowie prison... I'd still watch prison, it because David Bowie. Well, yeah. 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 David Bowie prison camp, uh, war, sadness, death. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's all. I've seen Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, but it's been a very long time. Yeah, it's the same um, here. I, oh, good. Yeah, it's, so, it's been several years since I've seen this film. It's going to be uh, mostly a new experience for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but... Uh, it, I think it's good that we're watching this movie after having seen Bridge on the River Kwai, especially. Yes. Because uh, uh, there are going to be there are thematic similarities mm-hmm. between the, that film and this that, one. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's there's also shared DNA with Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Both yeah. of those. Yeah, and we've watched both of those previously. Yeah, we have. So that's very good. We're building our pyramid. <laughs> and David Bowie's kind of, you know, he's got, he's got a little bit of, uh, of Peter O'Toole in him. Well, yeah. And, you know, by way of rock star. Yeah. So, that's that's kind of that's kind of a cool thing. Um, this film is by a Japanese movie maker. Yep, uh, uh, Nagisa Oshima. Uh huh. And uh, he, this is his first English language film. Yes. Yes. Actually, um, there's um, a very large British cast, and like one Australian, and a very large Japanese cast. And there are several people on the Japanese side that are very big names. Like, Nagisa Oshima was a big, you know, director. He made about 50 films. And um, the one of the other people in the cast is also the composer of the movie, and he's like a rock star in Japan. So technically, there are two rock stars in this movie. Um, there, there are a few famous famous Japanese people in here as well as a couple of famous English people. No Toshiro Mifune, yeah. which is a shame. Yeah. Uh, but, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. This is 80 something. Yeah. In 1983. Yeah. Mifune was still around and doing stuff in 
the early. But yeah, 1940s. we just saw 1941. Shira Mafuni was in that. Yeah, <laughs> which is very sad. So Shira Mafuni and Christopher Lee share the screen in 1941. <laughs> that movie. I'm talking about that movie now because I guarantee you it will never be a movie that we make you watch. Jenna. Yes, yes, yeah. you it's, will never see 1941. As part of here. a real education, the the really important part of that education is don't watch 1941. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Um, because it, it wastes Somebody's the only, gonna pull that out the only the time that Christopher Lee and Tashira Mufuni appear on screen together is in 1941. Mm-hmm. And that in itself is a sad, sad thing. But back yeah, that, that's to not, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Yeah, that's not, that, that's not a movie that has David Bowie in it. Yeah, no, probably. I mean, this movie does not have Tashira Mufuni or Christopher Lee. Yeah. Um, it is... I don't know what, what really to say about it. It's it's a very odd movie, and I it think is. the best way to describe the movie is just by watching the damn yeah. thing. Yeah, so, you know, this is kind of our <laughs> holiday movie. We have challenges finding Christmas movies that Jenna hasn't seen. So. I like Christmas and Disney. <laughs> this one, I don't know if it's really a Christmas movie, but the title of the film is Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, so we're going to allow it. Uh, and, and, and a character does say Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, in the movie. So I feel that all right, that works. Boom, Christmas movie. So okay. uh, we're going to go off. We're going to watch this fabulous film starring, as Jenna observed, David Bowie. Mm-hmm. David Bowie. And as we observed, neither Christopher Lee nor Tashira Mufuni. And we'll be back. Bye. <laughs> Welcome back. We just watched the very cheerful Christmas movie. That was <laughs> Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. I did laugh during it. Yeah. There, there was that one funny moment. That so, one funny moment. <laughs> so, Jenna, this is uh, you're, you're our uh, movie novice. This is sure. your first time watching this film. Uh, why don't you tell us what you thought? Um, there are three things I'm very disappointed in. Okay. Uh, number one, David Bowie was not shirtless nearly enough. <laughs> Uh, number two, David Bowie didn't sing. And number okay. three, I had a really hard time finding his package. Oh. <laughs> well, there was a preview. Well, well, buried in sand, you really it was, can't yeah, see it. Yeah. <laughs> so before the movie, we talked about the fact that this uh, film is kind of cut from the same cloth as uh, Bridge on the River Kwai and uh, maybe a little bit of Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, two movies we've covered on the podcast before. I think you can see why we said that now. Yeah. Um, so it's got that. Uh, I mean, it, the Lawrence character is is oddly similar to the Colonel in in uh, Bridge on the River Kwai in yeah. a different kind of way. Uh, although uh, you know this film clearly, I, I think what's what's striking about it. This is '83, so we're post Hayes era, mm-hmm. and yet when it comes to the central theme of the film, which is clearly homosexuality. They take a Hayes era approach in that they never say the word. They no. never say it out loud. But you know they do make it pretty they, clear they in say the initial queer scenes. At the beginning. Yeah, yeah. They right. do. Yes. They say queer a few times at the beginning. Yeah. But yeah, the rest of it is just. Yeah, they kind of dropped talking about it directly after a few scenes, and then just yeah. Well, out. yeah, because if you do, some guy has to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Every 
every time you yep. talk about homosexuality, somebody has to commit seppuku. That's what we learned from Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Uh, <laughs> so if you didn't know that about Japanese culture before now, we've all learned something. Um, but uh, Maybe that was a prisoner's plan to make all of the guards commit seppuku at some point. And that could be. But I think that's that's uh, that was an interesting choice to they, they never explicitly come right out and say that the colonel is clearly attracted mm-hmm. to David Bowie and how could he not be right yeah um, David Bowie I, that but, is one thing the the one scene where in the courtroom and he has to like take his shirt off to show the scars yeah. He did take his shirt off for that. He did. And you could tell the effect that it had. Uh, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, uh, that uh, he, Melissa... He seemed to be into that sort of thing. You know? I guess. Yeah. He seemed, he seemed yeah. pretty clear. So, yeah. Melissa, what do you have for us as far as details and facts about the movie that you'd like to share? Well, it, you know, first of all, I, f- I find it very interesting that it's a POW movie that doesn't feature anybody escaping from camp. Because almost every POW, you know, set in a prisoner of war camp movie, you see it's usually a major part of the plot is escaping or some, you know, some variant thereof. And this was just all about life in the camp. Um, The movie was based on a book called uh, The Seed and Sower. It was by a uh, South African gentleman who did uh, spend some time in a prisoner of war camp in Java, you know, like in the movie. Uh, the author's name was Lawrence Vanderpost, and you know both Selliers and the character of Lawrence were kind of, kind of based on himself. But the the book itself is um, three short stories that all kind of blend into one another. And the first story is about the character of John La- Lawrence and Sergeant Hara. The second story is about Selliers in the camp, and then the third one is about Lawrence having an affair with a woman before he gets captured, which I think is referenced in that, in that, that discussion. Scene, that scene in the, uh, against the yeah. wall. Yeah. 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 So there, you know, that I think that's part of why the movie kind of feels a little fractious at some point. It, so does, it, it does. It kind of wanders into some odd directions. That, that flashback segment, yeah. especially, is like very, yeah. very jarring and kind of like, what's <laughs> going on here? There are so many light, happy colors. During yeah. That. Yeah. And suddenly, it's a musical. <laughs> Without David Bowie singing. Without That's David Bowie. Problem. <laughs> There's even a line. I wish I could sing. <laughs> Dude, have you not Bowie. seen your own record now? <laughs> have you tried? Um, yeah. So uh, that yeah, I, I, there was there is a sort of a disjointed feel, you know the mm-hmm. the story of the of the Sellers character and the Colonel mm-hmm. feels like it's almost a different movie from Hara and Lawrence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and it all gets it, it's married together fairly well, but when you when you hear that fact about where those stories come from, you kind of go, yeah, I can see how yeah, yeah. how and they're telling a few different stories and trying to trying to make them all part of the same story. Mm-hmm. And and also there's the the uh, the very unusual musical score. Um, this movie actually features two rock stars because you've got David Bowie, but you also have a gentleman named Ryuichi Sakamoto who uh, plays uh, Yanoi. Uh, mm-hmm. and, but he, it, it was the first time he ever acted in a movie, but, and he had to kind of be bribed to act in the movie because um, uh, he was primarily a composer, 
and to get him to act in the movie, they said, hey, you could do the score too. So he's like, all right, cool. So he was a, music, pop, a very popular yeah, composer in very Japan. Very popular Japanese mm-hmm. composer, and uh, um, very very 80s sounding, as as you could tell. Uh, he also worked on the Black Rain soundtrack, oh, and yeah. and also won an Oscar working on the Last Emperor. Um, yeah, the Last Emperor was a really interesting score because it was him. It was one other guy and David Byrne from the Talking Heads. They all collaborated on the score for The Last Emperor. And also interesting about The Last Emperor was uh, Sakamoto also had an acting role in Last Emperor. So. Yeah. He liked to be in the movies he was composing for. Apparently. Yeah. Well, he did a lot more composing than acting. He was only in a few movies. Yeah, I don't know if we've talked about the, the trend of the 80s synth track on our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it is, I think, maybe one of the worst trends in the history of films. Uh, as to be fair, the 80s was a pretty bad decade. Wow. Oh, yeah, the, the 80s was awesome and special in a lot of ways. There, there are synth many tracks, but the it. synth track, I don't know. Uh, have we? Have you seen Lady Hawk, Jenna? Oh, yes. Lady Hawk. Yes, I have. Because there, there, oh, there are yeah. two movies in Lady Hawk. There's the movie that's happening and then the movie the soundtrack wants you to think you're watching (laughs) (laughs) and the two of them really never kind of combine and every time i watch lady hawk i'm just like i wish somebody would come in and write an orchestral score for this movie yeah and then suddenly it would be about 10 times better and and it happens in this movie too you're watching this this world war ii film and then there's this synthesizer so See, I can't even say it. The synthesizer music that comes in, it's kind of got a Philip Glass sort of sort of vibe yeah. to it, in that it's usually only like two or three notes mm-hmm. um, on the synthesizer, and and it just feels jarringly wrong. It, to yeah, me. it's out of place. Um, and there are a lot of '80s movies that have that problem because there was this trend, and I I blame I blame the trend more than I blame the people yeah. writing the the music that that. that the, the Alan Parsons project has a lot to answer for. Yeah, <laughs> Alan Parsons and the and Lady yeah. Hawk soundtrack yeah. really. Yeah, but but you know at least at least with this particular track, I feel it works better than most eighty synth tracks. It's um, it's yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's got kind of this luminous quality, and it's not as hilariously intrusive as like in Legend <laughs> or. <laughs> 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 yeah, there's also yeah. Tangerine Dream that did Legend, and yeah. that was. Yeah, that was quite the synth track as well. Yes. So, yeah, that that happened in the early '80s, and let's not talk about that anymore. (laughs) 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 Um, Also, Japanese director on this film, uh, Nagisa Oshima. Um, He had a very long career, like 40 or 50 years, making movies in Japan. This was his first English language movie. he didn't do a whole lot of movies that would be commonly known across the American populace, although he did make a movie in the early 70s called In the Realm of the Senses, which art film nerds might know. Um, but yeah, very interesting director. He, uh, on this particular production, you know, obviously there was a big cast of Japanese folks and big cast of British folks and like one Australian. And he, he would he would direct the Japanese actors very meticulously and with the British he's, he, he would be like whatever you guys are doing you just you just do it <laughs> they, he didn't he didn't speak English the the uh, set was a Washington translators and there, there was a lot of back and forth talking between the the English factions and the the Japanese factions 
Yeah, and uh, I was reading Tom Conti, who plays Lawrence. Yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't speak a word yeah. of Japanese. Not a word. <laughs> no Japanese. So he had to learn everything phonetically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he Which does a pretty a... good job oh, having, yeah. having watched some Kurosawa. It's like, eh, you know, I don't know. What do I know? Yeah, I, yeah, I don't speak Japanese, so I don't, I don't know sp- how well he's doing. But it sounded but... as Japanese as, you know, any other Japanese I understand. I, I think Tom <laughs> Conti actually probably gives the best performance out of everybody in the mm-hmm. film because oh, yeah. I mean you know first of all he's half of his lines are in a language he does not speak <laughs> and uh, he delivers a performance through that and and he kind know, of carries a, that he's the he, he's the he watcher character yeah. you know yeah. he's yeah. he's the you know as, as we look at like Bridge on the River Kwai he's almost the William Holden character except that he doesn't he doesn't escape and have to come back but oh, yeah. still that that character that sort of observes the weirdo, which is Cellier, <laughs> or Celliers. Celliers. Uh, I want to pronounce it like a French name. I can't help it. Because you're snooty. It is. It is because I'm snooty. So <laughs> he really he really does a good job holding the film together. The um, Bowie's not bad, and I, I don't think Bowie is a great actor. No, but um, he does reasonably well. Given this was a, like his really big dramatic role at least in movies at least mm-hmm. the first one he he tried mm-hmm. um, the reason he got this role was because he did a Broadway production of the elephant man uh, starring as John Merrick and he was actually fairly successful in that you know acting with the bag on his head um, <laughs> but because of that that's that's how he but he did it. take off his shirt so <laughs> <Yes. Yeah. laughs> too much different effect yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, Bowie was actually really, really busy during this this uh, period. He actually had three movies come out in the same year as. Oh the, wow! In 1983, uh, this came out, The Hunger came out, and Yellowbeard came out. <laughs> he had a very tiny role in, in Yellowbeard. It's a very silly movie. It is, huh. it yeah. is very silly. Very, yep. Yep. Yellowbeard is a. One hell of a movie. <laughs> Just boy. Uh, not good. I'm the first to admit it's but not good. It, it is a movie. So yeah. uh, I think uh, if anybody has any questions or comments, now's oh, probably a good time. I, I've got, oh, I've wait, got one, one other wait. major major path I need one to go down. Major path. I'm because um, Beat Takeshi is in this movie as Hara. Um, Takashi uh, Kitano is kind of this Japanese superstar actor director who's had a very long <coughs> career and you know uh, has hosted TV shows and all that. He's here playing Hara and um, really interesting fellow if you look into his past. Uh, he also was in uh, if you've seen Battle Royale, he was the sensei character in that he uh in the uh, reboot of the zatuichi blind swordsman movies he played zatuichi and he directed it Uh um he was also in johnny mnemonic if you remember that Uh, well i remember it but i don't want to (laughs) you don't want to yeah takashi kitano um as you can see he was famous uh enough here that he was only credited as takashi Mm -hmm. you know the, the one word name which means he's super famous um, yeah. And they were credited Toshiro Mifune as Toshiro. No, no. That never happened. They really should have. Yeah. Really. Mm-hmm. Really should have. So, yeah. all right, so does anybody have questions or comments? Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah you mentioned the Hayes era earlier. Yeah. And sure. you explain more about what that is? 
Okay. Uh, yeah, we've talked about that before, but obviously, um, yeah, it, not, it bears not repeating. Uh, the Hayes era was a period spanning basically from the 1930s until it sort yes. of started to break down in the 1960s and 70s. Yeah. And what it was was a code that films were required to follow. American it was, films. It was a morality code uh, that that uh, there was an office, the Hayes office where films would have to be reviewed and if you had any morality transgressions uh, they would have to be taken out of the movie and they were really messed up stuff I mean there were things like you couldn't show a married couple sleeping in the same bed married couples had to have separate beds things like uh, if somebody does if somebody breaks a crime in a movie they must suffer punishment for that crime which can sometimes, uh, I, I sometimes find frustrating watching uh, Hayes era like noir films. Mm -hmm. Because America, in American noir, if you're looking at a bad guy, he's going to be dead or in prison by the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. It's guaranteed it has to happen by the Hayes Code. Um, people like uh, Alfred Hitchcock had to, had, were very frustrated by, the, by that code. And what they would have to do, what, what Hitchcock famously did, was he would find ways to work around the Hayes Code because the people in the Hayes office actually weren't very bright. Um, so what he'd do is he'd come up with a scene that was absolutely horrifyingly glaringly wrong and, and in every way violated the code and they would miss the scene that he wanted to keep in. So for example, I don't know what the scene was that he put into Psycho but the scene he wanted to keep was the shower scene. Mm -hmm. So he put in something more shocking than the shower scene that he didn't want. Mm -hmm. And then the Hayes, the Hayes Commission was like, ooh, this, this scene's gotta go, and they didn't even notice the shower scene. One of the really big taboos, and the last taboo that got broken was homosexuality. You could not depict homosexuality in film. You couldn't talk about homosexuality in film. If you wanted to have a gay character in a, in a film you had to imply it in, mm -hmm. in very subtle or even not so subtle ways because against again they weren't very bright um, good example is a movie we just did on this podcast The Maltese Falcon uh, there's a character in there played by Peter Lorre who in the book is clearly identified as gay uh, and in the movie he's also clearly identified in gay but in ways the Hayes Commission didn't understand he's got a cane that looks a lot like a penis that he holds up to his mouth at one point. Yeah, um, he's getting kind of stroking it a little bit. You know, yeah, it, it, Peter Laurie is playing that up. He leaves yeah. his card, and uh, and Sam Spade sniffs it and says, <laughs> Gardenias. <laughs> uh, there are all these, and there are a lot of other films in that era where there are gay characters, and if you understand how they had to kind of write around it, uh, Rebel Without a Cause is another good yeah. example of a film with a character who, again, very definitely gay, but they can't tell you that. Uh, and then, uh, so by the 80s, the Hayes Code is gone. Mm -hmm. You know, you can have an openly gay character in this film, but when I mentioned that, that it's almost like a Hayes era film, it's because you've got gay characters in this film and they really carefully don't tell you that those characters are gay but, uh, overtly. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they just show you that they're gay. Um, <laughs> And, and that actually was one of the things I liked about the Hayes era at times is scriptwriters had to be really creative and had to be really clever and directors had to be really clever to show you something rather than simply come out and say, this character is gay. 
Uh, and that subtlety made for some really amazing screenplays uh, that they don't they don't that aren't as aren't as common anymore because you don't have those restrictions. You can just overtly say a lot of things that you couldn't say in in the Hayes era. So that is a very long answer to your question. Um, <laughs> anybody any other questions or comments from the audience? I'm seeing no hands. Do you have anything else to share, Melissa? Um, I was just going to add to the Hayes era discussion in that um, it, it's interesting that you know even past the era of the Hayes Code, there's still this lingering impact of things that are still kind of taboo. I mean, even though you can come out and say them, it's still there's yeah. still that sense that they are taboo, like you saw a little bit here, because for literally decades, our pop culture was scrubbed of that kind of content. And, I mean, if you go back and look at silent era films, especially foreign silent era films, or films from the very 1930s, you see, you see sex and references to, to you know, uh, gay people and drug use. Yeah, drug use. It's, all. it's all, it's all there. You know, Hedy Lamar having an orgasm on camera, it's all there. And then suddenly, 1933 hits, and it's all and that's when, yeah. shoved away. And that... There are remnants of the Hayes era in our current motion picture rating system yep. where a film can be rated R or even rated PG-13 and have really significantly graphic violence. But the minute you start introducing sex, uh, the rating goes up really, really quickly. Uh, they still have a problem with uh, women having an orgasm on mm -hmm. screen as being rated R. Uh, guys can do it. It's okay. Uh, but uh, but the, the ladies are not permitted. There, there's a there's a great documentary called "This Film Is Not Yet Rated," uh, which is all about the motion picture picture rating system and how it's really tweaked in weird ways. Uh, another good film about the Hayes era, especially about the taboo of homosexuality in film, is called "The Celluloid Closet." Um, that is narrated by Lily Tomlin, and it's it's all about the way that homosexuality was snuck into films and then how it, it emerged in the in the 80s 70s and 80s as, as a subject subject that you could actually talk about again um, and uh, it's uh, and that film is, is relatively dated I think it's about 10 12 years old now mm -hmm. so there's been a lot of advancement even from there in term of, in terms of homosexual content in film but uh, it, it is a really good look at how that kind of thing was suppressed for, for a really long time. And while there are other things besides homosexuality that was suppressed by the, by the Hayes Code, it was the last thing that really started to emerge when the Hayes Code started to break down. Um, any other questions or comments about the Hayes Code or even <laughs> the film we just watched? <laughs> Going. Yes. Um, yes, sir. The only other movie I've seen with David Bowie's Labyrinth. Yeah. So yeah. I have to ask, do you guys think the movie this Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, would be improved by George Lucas and Jim Henson being? <laughs> 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 well, oh. it would certainly be more puppets. I was about to say, I want to see Hara as a puppet. I, I don't know if it'd be better, but I'd pay money to see it. <laughs> I'd pay a lot of money to see that. I was thinking like a CGI re-edited. Christmas the Banthas walking across. Oh yeah, it could be like a special yes. edition of Merry Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Yes, <laughs> Tie Fighters. Tie Fighters, and the Japanese would be replaced by stormtroopers. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, 
Let's do this. Yeah. 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 He just and then the rancor would come in and tear his head off. And <laughs> I'm I'm loving this film. It's a good idea. Thank you for bringing it up. <laughs> this will be the best YouTube video ever. <laughs> <laughs> and with all our free time, we'll just make that. We'll yep. jump right on that. Yep. yep. I got five dollars. <laughs> We know friends. We have friends who make puppets. So we do. This, this, we could have, this could actually happen. <laughs> Dear God, it could. <laughs> oh. um, yeah. oh. All right. I'm going to allow for one more opportunity for questions, and we'll probably start wrapping it up. Uh, so it doesn't look like any questions. So final thoughts. We're going to throw it over to Jenna. Okay. So um, in the the scene right after Hara uh, let them go, um, uh, I can't remember the guy's name now. Uh, pretty boy with gay issues. Um, <laughs> what? Yeah. You know. wore eyeliner. Oh, the, the one with the extraordinary uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Anyway, yeah. he offers Hara a cigarette. Mm-hmm. Hara takes it, looks at it, and it's got a little uh, flower on the cigarette. And Chrysanthemum. He, yeah. And then he puts it in his pocket. Um, is that symbolic or is it just product placement? <laughs> I don't think it was product placement. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to have to but go we, with symbolic. Well, we, well, we spent time looking at that. Yeah, like well, the like a very um, deliberate shot. The chrysanthemum does have significance in Japanese culture, but I can't remember what it is. Sadly. Okay. Um, so there's probably more symbolism to that. The answer to your I don't question know what it is, is it is symbolic. We don't know of what. <laughs> yeah, there was nothing in my reading about the film yeah. that, that mentioned that symbolism so there, there sure is a lot of there are a lot of flowers There's, and, and I think if you if you if you follow the path of David Bowie eating flowers and all the flowers in the dream sequence and all that yeah. that probably all ties in sure. there's a it's research probably, project for somebody so somebody it, listening to this podcast it. here's your opportunity to go out and, and do a little bit of research it's probably so. a gay thing <laughs> yeah, Look, we're not trying to propagate stereotypes of no. gays being flowery and feminine. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm, I'm just talking in the context of this film. <laughs> right. But that's yes. this okay. this this. this right. As I gesture, this makes great radio. Yeah, this is great. This is <laughs> All right, uh, Melissa. Final thoughts. Um, within the space of about a year, there were three movies that featured people being buried up to their neck in sand. So this that was a theme. Them. That was a theme. A uh, the Challenger and Challenger? the Challenger and Creepshow. All, and they all, these yeah. those three movies. And if you go back a couple more years, you also get Caligula. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to do <laughs> which that. Which has more people, education. a lot of people buried up to their neck in sand, among other things. But there's what I don't know. What you're I don't want to talk about right. that movie. We'll not talk about Caligula. <laughs> uh, so my I'm final. Okay with me, just. <laughs> You My final thought to is to uh, thank the Trilon for uh, hosting us. We really appreciate it. Our next uh, Trilon live show is going to be Murder on the Orient Express in February. Do you remember the date, Melissa? Oh, no, I do not. Okay. well, uh, it's, it, we'll yeah, it's on the Trilon schedule. It's on the website. So, so it's, I'm really excited. It's, a Sunday, the, it's, a, it's the final uh, slot on Sunday when they're playing. Murder on the I love, Orient love, Express. love Murder on the Orient Express. That's going to be awesome. Our next uh, non-live podcast after this one, we are going to do House of Wax with Vincent Price. Hey. So that should be awesome. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Thanks once again to the Trilon. Uh, we have been your host for this wonderful event. Thank you and good night.
Well, the applause warms my soul. All right. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed our film fixation. We'll see you next time on A Real Education. Dee, dee.